Welcome to the EPFL podcast with Anna and Tekla. In weekly 20 minutes episodes, we'll share information and personal experience about a series of subjects, spanning from relationships, health, great women in science, and many more. Sometimes there will be experts joining us and answering your questions. Enjoy this week's episode! Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm here today with uh, Ariana Kraft. Um, yeah. So I, I created and produced the ETH Femtech Summit last year. It's now called the Fem Technology Summit. And the goal of the summit is to bring together femtech startups, researchers, um, doctors, and students for a 360-degree perspective on innovation in women's health. Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. We have Last year, we had 700 people from 36 countries come. And this year, we have already 1,000 people signed up and um, unis around the world, across all six continents, uh, not counting Antarctica. So, yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. Your next summit is in June, right? Yeah, June 1st and 2nd. Um, and it's virtual and it's free to attend. So, nice. yeah, everybody should, should come. <laughs> I will link the registration in the bio so if anyone wants to go you can always sign up um yeah can you tell us a little bit more about um, all the topics which will be talked about during the summit yeah i'm happy to um so the first topic is going to be the future of fertility and we think this is really interesting because there's a lot of um groundbreaking research happening in that area particularly around how like ovaries can sort of be a crystal ball into long-term health. So it's really looking mm -hmm. at fertility, not just in terms of getting pregnant, but also what does it tell us about the health of a person? What can it say? It's just always been looked at. Yeah. In terms of how to facilitate making a baby, but like it could be sort of key to understanding root causes, kind of a predictor of, are you going to have cardiovascular disease in the future and all that. So that's our first topic. Um, and we have, Kind Body, which is a, a unicorn in the US uh, coming to speak, um, um, a PhD researcher at Cambridge who's moderating the panel, um, Parla, if anybody knows what that, yeah, a lot of exciting startups. <laughs> anyway, I, I won't go too much into the details. Um, then we're going to be talking about the economic case for investing in women's health because there was a, mm -hmm. a report called Women's Health Access Matters that showed that if we just invested 300 million in the U.S. alone into women's health research, it would generate 13 billion into the economy. Wow. So basically, yeah, the fact that women's health has been really underinvested and under-researched has dramatic economic consequences also. So it's just actually good business um, to have women be healthy and contributing to the economy. Then we have a panel on the gender data health gap because women were excluded from uh, medical trials until just mm -hmm. recently. So a lot of the drugs that we use, a lot of our treatment practices are not actually based at all on women. We've just assumed that what is applicable to men can be applied to women. And for that panel, yeah, so we'll be really looking into where gaps are missing and how um, innovative startups are collecting those data sets that are missing. Typically we have uh, Lioness speaking, which is a, a smart vibrator company. And essentially they let you chart your orgasm and pleasure because nobody's really studied women's sexual pleasure. And so what can that tell us also about women's health? We have at home, uh, Evie, which is an at-home vaginal microbiome company. Um, yeah, just tons of really cool startups also on that panel. 
Um, then we're talking about sort of the link between gender and effective therapy in medicine, because as I said, um, the practices that we use haven't uh, yeah, been really adapted to women. So we have um, an app that is you can use to reverse autoimmune symptoms. Um, mobile ODT, who spoke last year, who's a, a cell phone to screen for cervical cancer. Again, uh, lots of really exciting startups. Um, then we have a keynote on how male-centric medicine endangers women's health from an emergency room physician, who's sort of showing the fact that, exactly, the fact that the treatment practices that we use have only been studied and researched in men actually puts women's health in danger. Like heart, heart attacks are the number one killer for women, even though you traditionally think of it as a male disease, those kinds of things. And then a sort of future facing, we're looking into the future of care. So in Femtech especially, um, it's sort of being used to redesign what healthcare could look like, right? Because the healthcare practices that we use weren't designed with women in mind. So now if you have all these new tools being put in place, what should healthcare actually look like when it's better designed? So there's like the chief medical officer of Maven Clinic who um, they're sort of redesigning postpartum and pregnancy care uh, by having personal care advocates um, and really so 24 seven on-demand support. So what would healthcare look like with that in mind? Um, there's also this app called Wild AI, which syncs your, your menstrual cycle to your training routine, because obviously as women, we have these hormonal fluctuations. So what does it look like actually when you don't just decide that men and women can train the same, but you take into account women's unique physiology? Um, yeah, those are some of the themes that we're going to be talking about this summit. Oh, it's incredibly interesting. I really encourage everyone to go and participate because, yeah, um, as you all know, I'm in SV and well, I did my bachelor project, right, in, in the lab. And it's true that most of the research are only made on male uh, participants, right, and individuals. And in every disease and uh, every disability affects women and men completely differently. So it's great that you're talking about it and making a little bit of a change in that department. Um, I think it's the future for us to just do it equally and also maybe the future is to do many researches on all the diseases that we already know about and that we already are treating and see how they affect women specifically. Yeah, yeah, to yeah totally. Like um, to your point, I was speaking to researchers about this and one thing I was thinking was, okay, yeah, but now we're starting to talk about it. So it's changed now. And they were like, well, no, it's not changed and it's not changing. People are talking about it a little bit, but it, this is still the norm that it's only done on men. Um, and yeah, like there's a quote from one of the speakers who's going to speak um, in an interview we did. And I think it's really interesting. She's like, medicine is a house on stilts, pretending it's not a house on stilts. So we're just pretending that it's okay, that we can just apply everything that's been done on men to women. Um, and yeah, also like she was the one who did the report on the economic case for investing in women's health. And she said, basically, actually, if we researched women, we would probably learn a whole lot more about the human population and about diseases because we haven't been looking at those areas at all. We've only been looking there and we would actually provide better treatment also to men because we'd be looking at whole new areas and have whole new insights. Um, so yeah, everybody talks about personalized medicine, but we don't even have sort of sex specific medicine, right? It's just like, everybody's like, we wanna do it down to your genome, but it's like, we don't even have sort of this very basic level. Yeah, exactly. But it's so interesting that you're also talking about the economic parts, 
yeah, I mean, everyone can go and everyone will have something that they will like to talk about. So it's just incredible that <laughs> you are like thinking also about the economics while technically thinking about the research and like specific research. For most of our listeners, one of the big example of uh, disease that affects women differently is heart attack. As you said, the symptoms for a woman are completely different from a male and they are often taken as indigestion, but it's a heart attack after all, because well, doctors are only looking at the symptoms that are the most let's say common or that are the most known and that's the male symptoms that just don't present themselves in women as well. No, totally. Um, but actually I was shocked recently. So I was having a call with one of the people that's volunteering uh, for the summit and organizing the summit and she's a medical student. And she was telling me about how they were having a class on heart attacks and it listed all the symptoms, right? And it said then all the symptoms, just like these are the, this is the normal way a heart attack manifests. And then as a little asterisk on that slide, it said, but remember it manifests differently in women. And then they don't list the way it manifests differently. And they just say, oh yeah, remember it manifests differently when like, so for 50% of the population, you would be diagnosing it wrong, right? So it's just, people think, okay, we're talking about it. We know this, but it, it's not, it hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that they just don't talk about it in school. It's horrible because, I mean, doctors should know how to treat everyone, but they are taught only to treat from the male perspective. Um, and that's why also most of women, when they go to the doctor, the only thing that they are hearing is, oh, it's just stress or oh, it's just your period that's coming. Like, it's so infuriating when you go to a doctor and they just dismiss you like that because they would never say that, tell that to male patient but also what i think is so interesting is that it's seen as it's just your period when actually like so there have been calls that the menstrual cycle should be kind of like the sixth vital sign um because it it tells you so much about a woman's health actually right like if she has her period and she's supposed to have her period it tells you if she doesn't have it it tells you oh there's something wrong right it's gone irregular it might be a sign of an underlying condition but it's just seen as like something bad and something like oh that's confusing for clinical trials uh, when actually like there have been studies that show that autoimmune symptoms uh, get better or worse in function of that you know it, it's so interesting if you actually integrated it you could be yeah improving the lives of I mean, essentially 50% of the population. Yeah, exactly. Maybe in the future, we'll see a change. I think, I think so. I think, actually, I think Femtech is, is really looking at how, from a design perspective, mm -hmm. uh, how do you redesign the tools um, to take into account sort of, yeah, unique factors right. that are interesting. Yeah. Uh, we also wanted to talk, too, about college uh, being the one set of a lot of gynecological conditions. Maybe you can tell us more about that. Something that I noticed, right? I think everybody has an inherent interest um, in sort of understanding themselves better and trying to find tools that will help themselves, right? But a lot of femtech is focused on fertility or pregnancy. Those are the areas that are being very much innovated upon, but it and there's been a lot of talk now about how that leaves sort of all of menopause and women that are above childbearing age completely untreated and uncared for. But there's also sort of puberty and college age women when you don't want to have kids necessarily. Um, there's not really the solutions being made to them. And I think this 
I think it's ridiculous, essentially, because you have a whole subset of the population, let's just take college age, that are moving away from home or moving away from their traditional care ecosystems. And they're given like no guidance whatsoever. They have to navigate any yeah, gynecological conditions they might come across themselves and are often dismissed by doctors. They might be navigating, you know, mental health issues because they're isolated and siloed from home, but it's also not taken into account at all how that might impact their reproductive well-being, right? We know mental health and the menstrual cycle are very intimately linked, but that's not studied or, you know, women are just sort of left to guess. Um, Also like sexual well-being, you know, there's a whole period of that where women get no guidance or choosing their form of contraception. I mean, there's just, there's like six factors, right? And, and it's a, a time where I think women are traditionally vulnerable exactly because they've moved away from home and they don't have like their touch point doctor. Uh, but it can tell us also so much about women's long-term health, right? Cause it's when you, when you're in your twenties, it's when you're setting up your habits for the long term, right? So I just find it really interesting that that's been such an underinvested and under-researched um, age group. Um, yeah, actually, I've been kind of working on a on a platform um, that is catered towards college age students. Uh, I kind of wanted to um, connect college age students to the femtech startups that could solve their pain point because exactly, I think that that's a very um, underserved demographic. I would yeah, say. for sure. Uh, I we did one episode about like the gynecologist and what we got from that is we talked to a lot of friends right and most of them said that they never went to a gynecologist well because they never really wanted to go before 18 and then once they like were 18 they moved here and well we don't really know where to go or what to do right and yeah, it's just incredible how we are not educated on it or not educated, but like the school doesn't give us anything. And I yeah. think they should play a role in it and say, oh, like here, now you are an adult, let's say, and you need to go to the doctor, let's say once a year to this specific doctor and once a year to this specific doctor. No, totally. Well, I think in the U.S., they they sometimes have uh, you know nurses or gynecologists on campus, but I also think you know even just the gynecological experience when you go to a doctor is somewhat also unsatisfactory, right? Like um, it's very clinical and doesn't take into account necessarily all the questions you might have, right? Because a doctor is also a touch point in terms of questions. Um, yeah, just even I think in terms of choosing contraception, I think there's so many factors they don't take into account, whether you're concerned about how it'll impact your mental health, whether your primary concern is like how, um, is whether it'll like make gastrointestinal symptoms worse. Like it's just very much seen as like, do you have these risk factors that you're taught about in medical school, which is like, do you have like a history of stroke um, or, you know, blood clots, then you can't have these types of contraception? Do you smoke? Do you have a BMI above a certain level? Those are just so broad and it doesn't really take into account, yeah, your lifestyle or what you personally are most concerned about and would be most comfortable with. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I agree. And even when you go to the gynecologist and you say you want to go on a contraceptive, right? They don't even tell you all the like specific contraceptions that exist. There are many that I didn't know even existed until we did the one episode right on contraception and even yeah. when i went to the gynecologist he said oh you can take this and i was like oh really that exists 
No, no totally. Like, uh, for me, it was kind of shocking. It was just kind of like, um, is there one that you want to go on? And I was like, um, no, could you tell me more about it? And then it was like, yeah. like, well, which one are your friends on? I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also, like, why would that be relevant? Like, why? So yeah. um, I-, I think this film, and she was like, okay, great. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that's, that doesn't seem very scientific to me, but okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, then, like, I know that um, I have a very good doctor that explained to me, like, everything quite, like, in a good way. And I didn't know if we had, like, blood clots in my family or a stroke and that type. So he, he said, oh, we're going to do some tests before I put you on the pill to be sure that you don't have blood clots because then you can have a heart attack. You can die from it. Like, it's really an issue and yeah so I I had the chance but I know that many of my friends that went to the gynecologist once we talk more about it they just went on the pill and the doctor that didn't even ask like any question you know about, about blood clots or family history or whatnot and that seemed so bizarre to me because it's a necessity to ask because not every pill will work for everyone, first of all. And then there are seriously, like, serious second side effects that are horrible. No, but also just, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that I'm beyond shocked, right? Because that is sort of like a baseline that they do teach you in medical school, so that they wouldn't do that is quite shocking. But even just from the way it's set up, um, I think from a design perspective in terms of follow-up, they put you on, if you're on the pill or something like that, or a new form of contraception, they put you on it and then they say, come back for a checkup um, in three months time, right? And to me, just three months is so huge. I get that they want to sort of, it takes time for your body to adapt to it. I get that. But you're left for three months with all these like side effects and your body kind of either reacting well, and that's great, but maybe really not reacting well. And you're super confused and you're just left on your own for three months. Um, and it's like, then we'll see, then we can like reevaluate and really you should be on it for longer to be adapted. It just, from a design perspective, no. I mean, I also think it's so interesting when you read those articles where they're talking about they're testing male, you know, they, they want to find a male contraceptive and, and why, like why it's failed for so long was because the side effects were deemed unacceptable, but there's side effects that are deemed acceptable, right? In women, um, but not for men or also yeah, just no, from the perspective, clear. but also from the perspective of like, right, I've read this quote before, um, men are fertile every single day, right, of the, you know, like, constantly, right, whereas women, it's, like, a very specific subset of time, once a month, um, but women are supposed to be on a hormonal form of contraception, like, all the time, and men not, right, also from that perspective, it's really interesting, I think, yeah. No, it's just incredible, because technically, a guy could impregnate, like, 365 women in a year, Right. And a woman can get what, once pregnant in one year. So like, why should we have the contraceptive and not men, first of all? I mean, there's now there's they're, they're trying it out. But I mean, it's also a question of like, I mean, because I, I had a friend who did a, a master's thesis on why there's been such little innovation in contraception. And one of the conclusions was also, well, because contraception technically does what it's supposed to do right like it prevents you from getting pregnant so even though there's all these side effects I mean it does what it's supposed to do so I think also from that perspective of now 
if they ever finally bring out male contraceptives on the market, will men use them? I think that's also a question, right? Because they haven't had to, right? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I think that's going to be a quite issue because if there is some side effect, I think they will never really take it just like that. But it's just sort of unfair that, you know, as society and medicine has evolved, this has like experienced comparatively a huge lack of yeah innovation. Yeah, exactly. And like so many side effects that are not really taken seriously. Yeah. Also, when you go to the doctor and you say, oh, I don't know, it affected my mental health. They're like, oh, no, it's okay. It's not the pill. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I think there's all sorts of studies that would be so interesting because <laughs> I think so many people ask themselves these questions, right? And then it's just mm-hmm. like, well, we don't know what is fact, what is fiction. And if you, people just, you know, like did like a, a large scale study on this, but yeah, I know it's mm-hmm. not that easy. A, we need the tools to be redesigned and we need more innovation in the space, but also in terms of like supporting the patient and like, you know, that perspective also really needs to be innovated. So yeah, there's a lot of work (laughs) I would say that needs to be done. I think contraception is very broken as an aspect, but I think, I think also, you know, the fact that there's been such little innovation in terms of like period pain, right. Also, um, and, and care for that. Um, I, I read a study, which is, which, which said that women lose nine days of productivity a year to periods, right? Um, and like, that's actually quite a lot of time when you lose a productivity a year to that. Um, but, you know, like in the US, you get 10 days off of, of work a year, right? So that's, it's actually quite a lot of time to lose. Um, and it's just, yeah, we don't, we don't take that into account either in the way we design things. Um, yeah, organological conditions, right? Endometriosis. I think there was a study that came out that said, one in 10 or something like that, leave the workforce because the pain is so seven, I think one in seven, one in seven. Well, yeah, that's okay. Even more crazy. Right. And yeah, you're talking about the economic consequences of that endometriosis impacts as many people as diabetes, but it gets $1 for every $200 invested in diabetes research. Right. And this is a, a thing. It's a whole body disease, right? It impacts your, your whole body and you're in chronic debilitating pain. And we just, yeah, sorry, there's no effective diagnosis, really. There's no effective treatment. It's crazy. Yeah. And even when women want to go and do the drastic change of, well, having surgery and taking out the uterus, most of the doctors don't even want to do that, which is horrible because I know in France, uh, there was a study like uh, conducted on the doctors. And when you go to the doctor, he doesn't want to do it unless you're like more than 30 years old, you have kids and you are married. And like say, you know, and they, the one question that they always ask is, oh, and what does your husband think about it? Like if you're in so much pain, like endometriosis, which is horrible, why why would he care? Like even why should you be married for that? And yeah, because they don't want to take away your ability to reproduce, right? That's the most important thing, obviously. Like, <laughs> so stupid, because they're like, if you ever want a kid after, you can always adopt. Like, there are so many things that you can do. Like, you don't need your uterus. And even, like, a woman can choose to not have kids. And that's... Most of the time, the doctors just don't want to hear that. 
because they're like, oh, you're going to change your mind. Like, I don't want to take that away from you if in a few years you're going to come back and say, oh, I want kids, but I can't live. I mean, you can choose. I, I know that if I was in so much pain as like most of the women are because of endometriosis, I would prefer to live pain-free rather than wait, have a kid and be in so much pain for like years. No, I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, but I mean, it's just insane, right? When you look at the history and you see that it still hasn't changed because for endometriosis, a common cure that they used to prescribe was getting pregnant. They were like, oh yeah, you're in so much pain. You just get pregnant, the hormones oh will make God. it better. And that's still that's still done in some places. Uh, and also until relatively recently in like the 80s, um, there's still sort of, you know, this like, you're pro right. I actually, yeah, that was like, a th I think in ancient Greece, that was the theory um, that women had like this wandering uterus and were kind of driven crazy by the fact that it wasn't filled with like a baby. Like <laughs> that was the source of the madness. Oh my God. Um, no. so there's all these, yeah, yeah. There's all these, I mean, there's all these hypotheses, right. Around like what it is, but it, yeah, I, I find that. Yeah. Insane. There should be when you talk about medical ethics, there should be stuff, you know, like sanctions in place. If you say, oh, I'm not willing to do this procedure because you're not married or because you haven't had kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, probably, you know, you don't say just yes after the first um, encounter with the doctor because it's a huge uh, surgery like any other huge surgery. Right. So you have yeah. to go to the doctor like a few times to just be sure that you really want to go through it. And like, that's what you want. But the fact that you are married or single or uh, you don't have kids shouldn't be a, an effect, shouldn't have an effect on that. No, but I, I mean, routinely, like we see that with like a, a bunch of these sort of diseases that impact more like PCOS, right? PCOS is also a full body disease and has, yeah. uh, you know, cardiovascular implications, um, also for diabetes. But usually it's only treated when women want to have kids because it impacts your fertility so they only see it as like oh yeah we'll try and modulate and treat it to help you have kids but like all the other aspects of your health that it impacts um you know that's not so important what's also crazy though is if you look statistically so like that's when I started sort of becoming shocked when I because I in the last year have found out you know, more and more and more information, right? Like when, that's why I said this, like when I first had this class in medical, in, in you know, in the medical curriculum, I hadn't heard about endometriosis or PCOS, right? I, I just, I had never come across it in my life. But when you start like amounting all these things that don't have effective treatment uh, methodologies and you're sort of dismissed by doctors, right? PCOS, 10% of the population, endometriosis, 10% of the population, menopause, everyone. But so many people have such like debilitating symptoms, um, you know, like postpartum care, you might have, you know, you might have postpartum depression, you might have, um, you know, like pelvic floor prolapse, right? You just like start accumulating all these things that have not been, you know, cared for or, you know, adequately integrated into the clinical system. And then you think of like, as a woman, statistically, I'm going to experience at least one, if not more of these. That's why it's great that Femtech like exists and you try to, well, educate everyone and promote uh, like all the research and female health in general. That's like the most important thing. Now it's about to, I think, go into more into the research, you know, maybe we'll have now researches that will be only for women health. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, 
I think actually also it's really important to involve students, I think, early on, right? Because it's yeah. like students are sort of the future generation of researchers or of doctors or, you know, of femtech startup creators, whatever, right? Like it's getting engaged at a younger age. There's like that much more that you can do uh, later on. So, yeah, I, th- I think maybe it'll start to change. At least that's what we're trying to do by bringing everyone together at the mm-hmm. summit. Yeah, I think I think it will it will take time like any other change, but um, I think we are going in the right direction, and that's the most important thing right now. But yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming for talking about all this like important information, right? And yeah, uh, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you like this episode, and for sure register for the summit, which will take place um, in June. Which day precisely? June 1st and 2nd, yeah. Oh, yeah, perfect. Uh, I know it's the end of the semester, but um, I mean, if you have some time, I think it's a great opportunity to talk about more about the female health and the economics of it. Yeah, and we'd love to have everybody. And yeah, mm-hmm. thank you so much for having me on, Anna. Really appreciate yeah, it. You're welcome. Thanks, guys, for listening, and uh, see you in another episode.